0: Hello and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter AudioCast. I'm your host Dr. M and this is issue number 39 corresponding with the week of September 12. This week corresponds with COVID update number 70 and let's get started. So the good news is right out of the gate things remain stable. North Carolina is in a good place. The country is in a very stable place with deaths and hospitalizations. We've had no multi-inflammatory syndrome cases in kids. And overall, the average daily case rate is in the 65,000 range, which is quite low, although this is not completely accurate because a lot of folks are using home tests. So we're probably having a lot of disease activity, but again, not corresponding with lots of death and hospitalizations. So that's a good thing. Overall... You look at what's happening, and now we're sitting in a place where we have multiple strains of Omicron, as of August 13th data showing that BA.4 makes up 2%, BA.4.6 makes up 9%, and B8.5 makes up the rest. This COVID wave we're dealing with is still in line with most of the volumes from the wave three, which was Delta. But again, death is way down from what we had seen in the past with the original Omicron strain spike back in January, and also Delta. We see no increased signs of morbidity with any of the new variants, which is great. Monica Gandhi recently wrote, the rate of severe COVID-19 in the U.S. is down. Hospitalizations can be misclassified as being from COVID since we swab everyone admitted to the hospital for SARS-CoV-2. The United Kingdom stopped this practice in August because of the confounders. A nice chart review in the ID Journal showed that vaccination rates and immunity are high, and many of these hospitalizations are just with COVID or incidental, not due to COVID. The U.S. rolled out Omicron-specific boosters, BA.4.5 plus the ancestral strain bivalent vaccination booster, but they seem to be most important for older people, not for everyone else. A paper published in the Journal of Medicine showed that those most at risk for severe breakthroughs of infection are 65 years and older. Finally, I am likely to slow down the frequency of these newsletters about COVID unless something new shows up to discuss because the information is getting less and less interesting. The good news is the information is so important to help us all understand risk. Stratified risk is the only true way to measure personal risk. Let us look at some CDC data from the spring, Omicron BA put spikes versus the fall, 21 delta wave. Median age of hospitalization has increased from 60 years old with delta to 64 with BA.1 and to 71 now with BA.2 and likely higher now at BA.5. Any underlying medical condition associated with hospitalization increased from 89% with delta to 92% with BA.1 and 95% with BA.2. Length of hospital stay decreased from 4.8 to 3.9 to 3.3 days respectively for delta BA.1 and BA.2. ICU admissions were down from 24% to 18% and then 13% with B8.2. Mechanical ventilation decreased from 14% to 8% to 6%. And finally, death went from 12% to 8% to 5% of those in the ICU. There's a link in the newsletter if you want to see where that data exactly came from. But all that is pointing to is that we can glean from this data set some very clear truths. With successive SARS-2 mutations coupled to increased population-based exposure to the virus via infection or vaccine, we are now seriously in a reduced-risk state, unless you are older than 65 with a comorbid disease or younger than 65 with a serious disease. 95% of hospitalizations were related to a comorbid disease regardless of age. The other big takeaway was this. If you are in a high-risk group, getting every available booster is vital to your survival based on the risk reduction data. For everybody else, the data is clear. You are okay to boost or not to boost. It is up to you. But absolutely, always work on your general health. Interestingly, though, the media coverage remains weak on risk stratification truths. Not surprising. Multiple outlet headlines on this data only discussed booster risk reductions. WebMD says, CDC says 44% of people hospitalized with COVID had a third booster or dose. Quote, adults should stay up to date on COVID-19 vaccination, including booster doses. Multiple non-pharmaceutical medical prevention measures should be used to protect persons at high risk for severe SARS-CoV-2, regardless of vaccination status, from the CDC and WebMD. And then you see in USA Today, 44% of people hospitalized with COVID got third dose of booster. There's so much more to discuss in the data as I just showed you above, but they cherry-picked only that which promotes vaccination for all. For whatever that's worth, I think that causes more distrust. But it is what it is. Quick hits and other musings. Number one, from JAMA, we see peak neutralization antibody levels were reached at a median of 84% approximately one to three months after infection. Neutralizing antibody levels remained reasonably high with a median of 69.8% at nine to 12, 13 months after infection. However, during the acute phase of the infection, less than one month, neutralizing antibody levels were the highest in those younger than five years and lowest in those with between the age of 12 and 16. Neutralizing antibodies and are in participating younger children younger than five years of age remain little changed in the point estimates up to 16 months after infection. That comes to us from Young et al. 2022. So this is very useful analysis for a few reasons. One, younger children have robust antibody responses that wane more slowly than older individuals. Two, reinfection in little children will become less common due to circulating antibodies. Three, severe disease will be exceedingly rare in the zero to five year old age range based on robust immune responses. Four, children are not the spreaders of disease as was noted early in the pandemic and continues to be to this day. Let's stop worrying about the children and them being the cause of spread or trouble in general. Quick hit number two. Since the initial COVID-19 outbreak in Massachusetts, there has been periods without excess mortality, corresponding to times of low prevalence. However, we also have observed two substantial outbreaks not accompanied by excess mortality. The first instance, late February and June of 2021, corresponded to the phased vaccine rollout period, during which the mean age of newly infected people dropped precipitously and prevalence among older people at 60 years of age was low, probably temporarily reflecting exceptionally high vaccine conferred protection against SARS-CoV-2 infection among the vaccine-eligible population. The second instance occurred late February to June of 2022, Unlike February to June of 2021, the mean age of newly infected people did not fall during the corresponding 2022 period and in fact rose. The uncoupling of excess mortality and new COVID-19 cases in the absence of decreases in the mean age of infected individuals suggests that in our highly vaccinated state, current levels of immunity are considerable, leaving many, if not most, individuals at high risk for substantial protection against the most severe outcomes of SARS-CoV-2 infection. However, given newly emerging variants and the unknown duration of protection from infection and vaccination, further monitoring is warranted. That comes to us from Faust et al. in 2022. So for me, this is key data. Overall, national risk continues to drop and show that a risk stratification or at-risk groups that vaccinate are in good shape. This is the key to the reality that most everyone can now relax and live life. For those at risk, vaccinate and lower your risk. Normalize life otherwise. Quick hit number three. In a well-written review of the association between COVID illness and irritable bowel syndrome, we see that COVID disrupts the GI intestinal microbiome, affects food choices through dysgeusia, vagal nerve dysfunction, affecting bowel motility and sensitivity, and fatigue affecting movement and metabolism. All these events conspire to alter GI function, leading to a constellation of feelings related to irritable bowel syndrome. This comes to us from Chan et al. There in the newsletter, you can go to section two, and there's a detailed analysis of where all these data points is coming from that I'm not going to read today, but you're welcome to go read it. It's pretty interesting. And they go through point by point how the dysfunction in the GI tract is occurring in response to SARS-CoV-2 infection. Number four, from Dayo and colleagues, we see data about rebound COVID symptoms. This is a phenomenon that I experienced firsthand in March of 2020. I had 3.5 days of mild COVID symptoms before feeling great for a day and a half. Then I experienced a big rebound in fever and symptoms for two days before having a month of fatigue and slow return to my baseline. In the study, the population included 568 participants who received SARS-CoV-2 mRNA testing on days 0 to 14, 21, and 28. Viral rebound was defined as a 0.5 log 10 viral RNA copies per milliliter increase in and symptom rebound was defined as four-point total symptom score increase from baseline. Baseline was defined as, as study day four primary analysis or eight days from symptom onset secondary analysis. 12% of participants had a viral rebound. Those that had rebound to SARS-CoV-2 were older Symptom rebound occurred in 27% of participants after initial symptom improvement and in 10% of participants after initial symptom resolution. The combination of high-level viral rebound to greater than 5.0 log 10 RNA copies per milliliter and symptom rebound after initial improvement was observed in 1% to 2% of the participants. Deo et al. 2022. So, for me, this is a non treated group, making the Paxlovid rebound data not a purely drug related phenomenon. This is an important piece of information as it shows us that the virus may take a prolonged time frame to resolve in a subgroup, up to somewhere around this 10% range. Just knowledge and data helps us understand that we are not struggling per se if we have a slight rebound. This is just the new norm for one in 10. Five. From the Annals of Internal Medicine, Baseline pulmonary severity of illness was strongly associated with plasma antigen level, with mean plasma antigen level 3.1 fold higher among those requiring non-invasive ventilation or high flow nasal cannula compared with room air. Plasma antigen levels higher in those who lacked anti-spike antibodies and in those with the Delta variant. Additional factors associated with higher baseline antigen level included male sex, shorter time since hospital admission, decreased days on remdemsevir, and renal impairment. In contrast, race, ethnicity, body mass index, and immunocompromising conditions were not associated with plasma antigen levels. Plasma antigen level of 1,000 nanograms per liter or greater was associated with a markedly higher odds ratio of worsening pulmonary status at day five and longer time to hospital discharge. For those that end up heading towards the hospital in the future, this is a metric that can be used to predict risk and the need for medical interventions an antigen means a viral fragment that is immune irritating it is a protein that can be identified in the blood in this case it is a SARS2 fragment that we're looking at number 6 a very nice analysis of patients that have been vaccinated with two doses of the ancestral strain of covid vaccine had a BA.1 or BA.2 infection and then did they or not have protection against BA.5 from the text we see the previous SARS-CoV-2 infection had a protective effect against BA.5 infection, and this protection was maximal for previous infection with BA.1 or B8. .2. It comes to us from Mulatto et al. 2022. This is of interest for those that will choose to receive the fall COVID booster, as the RNA genetics of the spike protein are from the ancestral strain as well as the BA.1. In, re- in real life, though, those infected with BA.1 or 1. .2, me included this last February, should have nice protection against BA.5 with T and B cell immunity, and maybe even antibodies. For me, the antibody levels in my blood are probably very low now, seven months out, but my B and T cells are primed and ready to deal with this virus, BA.5 or any of the other variants for quite a while to, to, to continue. But I may have already been exposed to BA.5. For all I know, I have new immunity there too with such a large percentage of people not even knowing they've had a recent exposure of B8.5. Number seven, from a research group out of Tel Aviv University, we see that the group found two antibodies that neutralize all strains of COVID-19, including Omicron, with up to 95% efficiency. The antibodies were isolated from individuals with the ancestral strain as well as other variant infections. There is a strong possibility that these pooled antibody treatments may prevent serious disease and illness if clinical effects can be shown, thus reducing or eliminating the need for repeated booster shots. This comes from Lee et al. 2022, LI. Time will tell, as this is very preliminary data, but I am very interested in this one. Section 2. The enterovirus polio is now heading into transmission state of significance in New York, according to new sewage viral tracking reports. The first known case occurred in July in an unvaccinated man in southern New York, where polio vaccination rates have dropped to the 60% range. He developed paralysis, a rare but serious complication of polio. Sewage reports show that there is infection occurring in higher numbers than previously thought. It will only be a matter of time before more paralytic cases of polio are seen because of the lack of viral vaccination protection. It has been over 10 years since a case of paralytic polio has been seen stateside. This is potentially the beginning of more preventable disease issues in the United States. With the increasing anti-vaccine stance being adopted in the wake of the COVID vaccine messaging debacle, we have to be vigilant for these previously unseen illnesses in our clinic and around the country. The inactivated polio vaccine is very effective at treating these issues. So if you do not have this viral protection, I would highly encourage you to get it. Again, if you're interested in the post-acute COVID syndrome or irritable bowel syndrome summary of physiology, go to the newsletter, salisburypediatrics.com, health and wellness tab. Look at the newsletter for uh, this issue for COVID uh, update number seven, and you can read more about it if you wish. Uh, Recipe of the week is Lentil Soup by Pinch of Yum. Link is in the newsletter. Very tasty stuff. I'm a big fan of lentil soup. And the song of the week is blank space by Imagine Dragons. All right, folks. My last thought is the sun will rise and set no matter what you do. How you use the sun's energy is up to you. Hug those kids. Have a great day. The information provided in this newsletter audiocast is for educational and informational purposes only, is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other health care professional, and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.